Hi, everyone. It's James Carroll, and welcome to the first bonus episode of Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. I want to thank all of our listeners for making the podcast such a big success and taking us to number one on iTunes. For this episode, we're going to sit down with Detective Joe Fanciulli, the detective who solved the McCrary-Taylor case and brought the family to justice. Joe is going to walk us through his history and give us more insight on exactly what went down and also talk to us about the tricks of the detective trade. Something he knows very well, having been a cop for over 20 years. Detective, where does it all start for you in this story? Well, it was December of 1970. Um, I had just graduated from the police academy in Lakewood. And actually, it was the first week that I was on the street, although I'd worked in another department before, but this was a brand new thing in Lakewood and they wanted to have their own academy and have all of us go through it and that sort of thing. So I did that and went on the street. And in the first week, I got sent to one of the biggest banks uh, in the area at the time um, on a check fraud case, which I had never worked. Brand new police department, first week on the street. I, I get thrown into this and I'd never worked one before. So I was kind of uh, learning as I learning as I went along. And, and as I found out, as soon as I got into it, this wasn't just somebody passing a couple of bad checks. This, this was huge. These people had gone from one end of the city to the other on West Colfax Avenue, US 40, the, the main, the main drag sort of that runs from the Eastern edge of Aurora to the Western edge of Golden, all the way across the Denver metro area. That was the main way that people got through Denver before Interstate 70 was built. I, I don't know if it still is, but it, it was once called the longest continuous uh, commercial street in the United States. So in those days, it, it was a very lengthy process. I mean, you, if you think about it, you merchants took checks. These guys pretty much hit small, small shops, although uh, there was a big Sears in, in, in town, and that was like the biggest store in Lakewood at the time. They bought, um, remember, they were traveling as basically two families. So they bought clothes. They bought, you know, sort of things they needed from day to day. They bought food. They bought things that they could they could pawn easily, or, uh, articles that they could pawn easily. Uh, nothing extremely expensive, but stuff that it was easy to get rid of. Yeah, I mean they stayed below they stayed out of the radar. They stayed below the radar for most of the time. And as we've talked about before, what what really brought things to an end in Santa Barbara was and car went out on his own and thought he didn't need Sherman anymore. And the Giordano supermarket robbery happened. Um, and of course, that was the beginning of the end and the whole deck of cards fell apart. What was your first hunch about the family, your first impression of them? I knew there was something off about these people. You know, as I, as I worked the case and I talked to the people at the motels they were staying at, talk to the shop owners and what was going on kind of when they came in. Um, it was just something off about them. Um, I sort of itinerant, low class. They've been, they've been called hillbillies. They weren't really hillbillies, but they were, they were that kind of characters. Sherman did a lot of drinking. Sherman was drunk a lot of the time. Carl was, was not a real drinker. 
um, the, there was there was no no drug use or any of that kind of thing. I mean, back back then it wasn't as prevalent as it is now, but they were not involved in any kind of drug use. They were adrenaline junkies, but they they had they had this uncanny ability to sense when things were going south and go straight back to the motel, tell the women and the kids, pack up, we're leaving. And they would be gone. They would be gone in 15 minutes. Um, you know, the story about um, me headed down to St. John's Cathedral in, in Denver with the arrest warrant for Sherman, and, and I miss them by 30 minutes. Uh, something triggered and they packed up and were gone. Think about what things were like in the fin with financial transactions in 1970. Um, it took a while before the merchant deposited the checks. It took a while for those checks to be manually processed by bank A, the merchant's bank, then get to bank B, the customer's bank, then go through that whole process then be determined that there wasn't enough money in the account, and then the reverse to go from bank B to bank A back to the store. Um, in, in those days, it wasn't unusual to have a 10-day lead time if you wrote a bad check, or it was even detected. In the podcast, you describe many challenges of being a detective in the early 70s. Can you expand on your process, how you got things done? Everything must have been so taxing. It was totally manual. Um, I, I think we've, we've talked about it before. I, you know, I had this gigantic three by five card file system behind my desk that I, that I put together when I started working this case and had cards in there for every place they'd been, every motel they stayed at, every store they shopped at, every car they had, anywhere they bought gas, any place I could get a record that they physically were during the period from late 1969 until, until, uh, the summer of 1972, I had in that card file. So when someone would, would come to us with a potential case that was connected, I could go right into that card file and figure out, uh, yeah, they were in Kansas City that, at that time, and here's where they were. And they were there from this date to that date. We could start to put things together. So it was, it was a wall that was a, uh, a database. It was a, a card file database. I don't know. I, I sort of figured this out myself um, because of what I was faced with. I, I sort of figured out this method of organization. I don't necessarily know that anybody else would do it this way, uh, but it was a total paper environment. I mean, I, I had an IBM Selectric on my desk and that's how I wrote reports. There was no way to pull information or to segregate information other than to physically read reports and pull things out yourself and make lists. In, in my experience, the, the real work is behind the desk on the telephone, um, going door to door at the area of a crime scene, talking to people, documenting, um, being able to, tra to transfer the knowledge that you've gained to paper in an organized fashion so somebody else can understand it. And in a way that down the road, when charges are filed, a prosecutor can use it successfully to convict somebody. Um, that was the biggest problem with a lot of the jurisdictions that I tried to help uh, with unsolved cases. 
the, the paperwork, it just wasn't there. The attention to detail at the crime scene, it just wasn't there. It, it takes a lot to put a case together and convict somebody, but it doesn't take very much to screw it up and lose it. Tell us a bit about your background, what you studied and how it furthered your practice as a detective. Yeah, I have a degree in English literature. I did a lot of writing. Um, because of that, you know, I, I, I sort of, well, to, to even back up further, I mean, I'm the, I'm the product of a Jesuit high school education and a Christian Brothers college education. And in, in that environment, you're, you're taught to be a critical thinker. And we don't have enough critical thinkers around today. We, we have people who, who will take something that they're given or something that they're told and just tuck it away and run with it and not question it. You know, I, I, I guess I was always somebody who kind of questioned everything. Um, but, but because of the, the educational background, I also had the ability to write. And I was, I was complimented a lot in, in the first department I worked at. And then again in Lakewood, once I started writing about my reports. And I, I really believe that that's one of the reasons that I was in this first group of people uh, when we form the what we call the investigation and review division, which ultimately became the detective division at Lakewood in 1972. And um, I know in, in this particular case, um, what one report uh, in particular that relates to the airplane ride with Carl from San, from San Francisco when, when uh, we got him out of San Quentin to Denver, where he sat there for the two and a half hours of that flight and just dumped on me details about what happened in, in these murders, but of course laid it all off on Sherman. When I got back to Lakewood that night, I, I didn't even get to book him. I went straight to the IBM Selectric and started typing up from memory everything he told me as best I could remember his quotes. And we use that, we use that report in, in the trials. And um, the defense obviously objected because he wasn't Mirandized. And it went to the Colorado Supreme Court and the decision came back that uh, it was okay to use that information because I never asked him any questions. I'd asked him one single question and didn't Mirandize him, the whole thing would have been thrown out. How does that work though? Is it your word versus his? Uh, he wasn't, I, we, we didn't get to the point of, of him arguing that he didn't say those things because he, of course he would never get on the stand. Mm. But it was a legal maneuver to try to get it all thrown out because he wasn't Mirandized. But, but as the Supreme Court came down and said, the officer didn't ask any questions. If you don't ask any questions, you don't need to Mirandize them. What was your approach to interrogation? Tell us a bit about your methodology. My, my technique was always go into the room with the person, sit them down, and just let them talk. And, and usually the way to get it started would be to say something like, do you know why you're here today? And it's kind of funny because they would start to talk and sometimes they would tell you about something they'd done that you don't even know about. You just let them talk and let it get, let them talk till they had nothing else to say and then start asking them questions. But in doing that, you could kind of figure that person out. You could figure out what made them tick, what what, what they're thinking, 
whatever, and, and you could maneuver yourself into a role where you could play off against their weakness and get them, get them convinced to talk to you. You know, I'm your friend. You can tell me everything. And I get really unnerved as we were talking about these TV shows. I get really unnerved when I watch video of two, sometimes three detectives in a, in a six by six foot interview room with some poor guy crouched down in a chair. I, 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 it makes me nuts when I see that. Very low key, um, gain their trust, get them to feel that I'm there to help them. I can't in, in all these years ever think of a case where I ended up leaning over a desk screaming at somebody, you know, I, I mean, you, you've got, you have to maintain control. You have to maintain composure because you're in charge. You don't want to let that person you're interviewing get in charge. In an interrogation, when do things go awry? How can the power dynamic between a cop and a suspect change? The, the, the tables can flip if, the person being interviewed has a stronger manipulative personality than the detective. And the, the, the person being interviewed can basically overshadow the, the detective and get them sidetracked. I can, I can remember a guy that, that I interviewed one time. And he, again, it was, a, it was a, a fraud. This guy was a, was a fraudster. And I would ask him a question and I'd say, where were you last Thursday night? And he'd sit back in the chair. Where was I last Thursday night? And he's thinking of an answer. And I mean, that, that can unnerve you really quickly and you can jump on the guy and whatever. But I played his game. I, as I remember, we were in that room for a couple of hours. But I eventually got him off of doing that and got him free flow talking. And, you know, that's that was sort of the end of it it's one once you can get them talking they're going to dig their own grave they're going to dig that hole and the more you talk to them the deeper that hole gets and you just have to be able to recognize pieces of what they're saying and come back around and show inconsistencies in what they've just told you wait a minute 10 minutes ago you told me this now you're telling me this once you figure out that they've dumped their bucket as much as they're going to do it. Then you come back and start asking questions based upon what they've said. Um, another thing that, that I didn't do was I, I didn't take notes. I didn't sit. You see a lot of people doing interviews, writing and writing. I didn't do that. I, I tried to keep it in my head because it's distracting. You're not looking at the guy. You're not making eye contact. You're, you're, you're so busy writing that you could be missing nonverbal cues that are coming from this person. In this case, we, we had, we had Carlin Sherman and, you know, one would being inter be interviewed by one person and the other would be interviewed by the other person. And then you would take a break and compare notes and go back in and, and whatever. But I mean, I, you know, I've, I've used, uh, I mean, I, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I've used the tactic of lying to somebody and telling them that I knew something that I didn't. And it's perfectly legal to do that. Uh, even today, it's still legal to do that for now. 
you raped her, Sherman. I know you did. Now, in, in today's world, you could play the DNA card, you could play all kinds of stuff, but we don't have any of that. I mean, watch, you know, watch the facial expressions and watch the argument that comes back. Basically, it's how somebody responds to you. The words that they use, you know, are they looking down? Are they looking at the ceiling? Are they looking to the side? Are they squirming in the seat? Are they hunched down? Um, you, you look for these nonverbal cues as you ask questions and get answers and, and be, be able to determine in your own mind based on your experience as an interviewer, whether they're telling you the truth or not. And depending on how that's going, you can, you can nudge your questions um, and, and, and push those questions to a point where you've got them in a corner and there's nothing else they can do but tell you the truth because they know that you know what the truth is and, and you know when they're lying to you. Are there any particular tricks for sussing out when someone's lying to you? A, a lot of it is the tone of voice. Um, the, the fact that they either, they either show rage when they answer, you know, unusual rage when they answer um, or don't show any emotion. Um, the looking around the room, look, looking down at the feet, that's a big thing. Not looking you in the eye, looking off to the side. Um, you, 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 just, you just sort of, after, after watching so many interviews and being part of so many interviews, you, you, you just get a feel for this. And once, once, you've, once you've figured out what kind of personality you've got in front of you, you know which one of those tactics to use to get information out of people. Now, obviously, there's been times when I've just gotten nowhere with people, absolutely nowhere. And that's going to happen. It's not going to work every time. But if you do it right, it works more often than not. Instincts, instincts are extremely important. Do you think those instincts are innate? Do you think you have a born aptitude for detective work? I, I, I like to think I do. I mean, it's all, all these years later, um, 50 years later, I can be driving around in my car with somebody and, and just out of the blue, did you see that? What? Did, did you see what that guy just did? Uh, I mean, it, it becomes part of you. It, you never lose it. So it, yeah, instinct is important, but it's extremely important to be able to speak well, write well, think coherently, think um, in, in progressive steps and, and put things together. Be, be able to separate the wheat from the chaff and not focus on the unimportant not, and not get easily sidetracked because in interviews, people will try to sidetrack you. They want to send you over here. They, they don't, they don't want to keep going straight ahead. They, they want to deflect and send you over here. Deflection is a big thing. Carl and Sherman seem to be masters at deflection. Constantly. Well, deflecting to each other and coming up with reasons why they did certain things made no sense. If I didn't go along with it, Carl would kill me. Have you ever felt your life was in jeopardy once the McCrary's knew who you were? Working this case, no, because these guys were in jail. 
You know, I mean, I wasn't tracking somebody down. Now, you know, have I worked cases where I'm out looking for somebody? Yeah. When I'd been on the job, Lakewood, for about three months, and I arrested a guy on a series of burglaries. Didn't know it, but he bonded out of jail. It's a Sunday morning and the doorbell rings. This guy shows up at my front door on a Sunday morning. And he wants to start arguing with me about that he didn't do this stuff. I couldn't believe it. My, my wife was just freaked. She was just freaked. We had a conversation about what could potentially happen if he ever set foot on my property again and how it would be a really good idea for him to turn around and leave and never come back. And he left and he never came back, but that got raised in his trial, the fact that he did that. They don't alert victims. I, you know, I was involved in, in working several cases over the time of my career and I don't, I don't have a number, um, but a few of them are still unsolved and there's, I mean, there's, there's one that's been unsolved for 50 years now and probably never will be solved. It was a woman who disappeared out of a parking lot. Any other case compared to Sherman and Carl? There is not another case like this. There has never been another case like this. And I hope there never will be another case like this. I mean, think about it. A family of people from babies up through grandparents traveling around the country, kidnapping and murdering women. There's nothing like this that's ever happened. I, I firmly believe, based on what I've seen, is that it was the chemistry between these two that caused this. By themselves, they could never have done this. They didn't have the smarts or the guts to do it. But there was, a, there was some chemistry when they came together that gave them the ability to do what they did. And it, it's, it was a sort of a one-upsmanship kind of thing. It was, I can, you know, I can show you that I'm more of a badass than you are kind of a thing. But once they got in the sexual piece of this with the very first donut shop kidnapping in South Salt Lake City, um, a week or so before Leora Looney, the switch flipped and they became the monsters that they, that they are. When, when, I, when I think back, serial murders have been around for a long, long time. I mean, you, you can go way back in history and identify some serial murders, murderers. But I, I, I was not aware ever of a pair doing what these guys did. Are there things about the McCrary murders that are still unexplained? There, there were a lot of things that happened in this case that are inexplicable. One I think we've talked a little bit about is no one has ever been able to figure out who the author of the Traveling Criminals Bulletin was that came out of Texas after the family was arrested for the supermarket robbery in California and and uh, Carl and Ginger were arrested at the grandmother's house in Athens, Texas. Who was it that put together that these guys could be responsible for murders across the country? I never figure out who that was. 
I have no idea. After all of these years, I have no idea who put that together. Because with, with what went on with that case, if I'd have put that together, I sure want somebody to know about it. At, at any rate, the, 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 the thing about the composite pictures from that night at the donut shop, and if, if you lay those mugshots of Carlin Sherman from California, you lay those mugshots next to those composite pictures, and it's like, wow. Now, I'd been around those composite pictures since August of 1971. And I'd been looking for these two characters since December of 1970. And it, it kind of bothers me that I could never recognize. I, I never put two and two together. The, the light didn't come on that, wait a minute, this looks like Carlin Sherman. Talk to me about the feeling when you put two and two together and realized that Carl and Sherman were your guys. It came on instantly. Uh, it was it was lightheaded. Um, you, you can feel the heat in your body moving up into your head. Um, not believing it is this really possible? And, and and I can remember, you know, we we the crime lab used to be down the street in a, in, a, in another block from where the police department investigation section was. We were spread around in three or four different buildings was before we had a police building. And, and, and I can remember us going down to the crime lab because Carlin Sherman's print cards that I'd gotten from different agencies when I was working the check case, they're sitting in a file in the crime lab, the same place where the latent fingerprints that came off the donut shop cup are sitting. And they were there. They were there. And, you know, I, I still remember hanging over Doug Monsoor as he's comparing those fingerprints. And when he makes the match, that's it. We've got it. We've got it. We had not only the best evidence, but we had the only evidence in all of those murder cases. It, it was an incredible feeling of, of exhilaration, but also a feeling of, why didn't I figure this out sooner? That sounds uh, like it's a bit haunting, is it? Yeah, it, you know, I mean, it's 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 followed me. It's it followed me through my career, and I, I don't know that it didn't make me more cautious, more thoughtful, more questioning. You know, I still do that today when I look at cases. I I I, I am always the devil's advocate with something. I'm I'm always trying to think of reasons why it can't be. And excluding all of that and then moving into the reasons why it can be because you can sometimes convince yourself um, too quickly. It's, it's made me more observant. It's made me more thoughtful. It's made me more open to other potential possibilities, but it's also made me a lot more critical of evidence that I see and, and making sure that what I see is real and it isn't something that I want it to be. You know, I, I, think, I think it was a journey because it was so early in my career that it 
it forged the way that I do things. So yes, you know, I, I learned things in that investigation that I've carried with me throughout my life. Um, would I, would I be the person I am today? If I hadn't gone through that experience, probably not. Would, would I be as successful at some of the things in my life that I've done? Probably not. Um, only because it happened to me so early and so early in my work life. Do you think of yourself as a model detective? I don't think so. Um, you know, a lot of it, I mean, I was in the right place at the right time with the right skill sets. Well, the things that I've talked about with, you know, your ability to talk to people, ability to put things into writing, ability to, to thoughtfully move from one thing to another. And you know, even when I, when I retired from, from law enforcement and moved into my corporate career, um, that again was being the right place at the right time with the right skill set. It enabled me to be very successful in a second career. When is a case done for you? And when do you start to put it behind you? I don't know. With me, it's just, it's just a feeling that I know I've exhausted everything. And I, I, I had a conversation with a couple of people recently about a, a case that I'm involved in now. And it, it, once, once you move through everything that you can logically do and put pieces together as best you logically can if you still aren't to an end result you have to sit back not walk away but you have to sit back and you have to wait and it can be a week it can be a month it can be a year it can be years for that next little piece to come along you have to figure out your own way and what works best for you i i'm happy that I got to participate in this, that I got to learn from it, that I got to do the kinds of things that I got to do because of it. Did another case as big as the McCrary murders ever come along again? No, I never had anything this big happen to me in the rest of my career. I, I had some important things that I did in both the law enforcement career and my second career in the corporate world. I know this, working that case and working with the people that I worked with, particularly Pierce Brooks, made me the kind of person that I became. It honed my skills and whatever success I've had throughout my life, I owe to what I learned in that case. Is it a letdown that the biggest case of my career happened when I was 23 years old? No, because I don't think that if that had, if it hadn't happened and happened the way it did happen, I wouldn't have ever done the things that I did for the next 40 years and, and I'm still doing. The, the biggest piece of pride that I have out of what I learned in my career was what I was able to impart to my sons and to make them the men that they are today. How to, how to conduct yourself in life, how to treat other people in life, how to treat your family, how to treat your kids. 
um, what's important in life and what's not important in life. Well, that's it for Families Who Kill the Donut Shop Murders bonus episode. I hope you gained some deeper insight into the case and learned some things about how detectives do what they do. If you like this one, be sure to check out our second bonus episode, which is about some other murderous families in the last 50 years. It's pretty chilling. I want to really thank Detective Joe Fanchuli for giving us more of his time. He was such a vital part of our story as a guest and a producer, and it's been an extraordinary honor to speak with him. See you soon, and thanks for listening.